Welcome to a special edition of Inside MusicCast. You'll recognize the last name, and you're right. Crosby Loggins is the son of singer-songwriter Kenny Loggins. Enough said, because apart from the obvious familial resemblance and a genetic gift for melody, this is not a simple story of a son following in his father's footsteps. He's paving his own road through the creation of his very own style of music. Interestingly, he didn't see music as something he had to do. Let's just say that music found him. He started writing his own songs by the age of eight and later honed his skills at Colorado University and the Los Angeles Music Academy. He then began searching for something that he already had. But it took him a few years to realize it, and now he's happily heading straight into the family business. He's an amazingly fresh artist who has something to say, and it clearly comes through in his music. Inside Music Cast is happy to welcome Crosby Loggins. Crosby, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey, I want to dive right in. You know, the the undeniable fact is that you grew up with a deep-rooted musical heritage with your father being one of the most recognizable voices in the history of popular music. So do you think that it's fate that you're following down a similar path as dear old dad, or do you feel like that you found your way to music in your own way? (laughs) I think it's a a cruel joke is what I think it is. (laughs) Um, It's uh, one of those things that I think that if um, if I really, really had a choice in the matter, I might have tried to take another... Um, route, and I guess what I mean by that is when you're really passionate about something, if you turn away from it, it can find you uh, mm-hmm. feeling pretty miserable. And, yeah. uh, and that's just uh, the way it sort of panned out for me. Mm-hmm. Sort of like love, isn't it? It's sort of like love. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like falling in love with your best friend's girlfriend. No doubt. <laughs> it's one of those situations, sticky situation. you got to reconcile it one way or the other. Wait a second, who does that? Uh, no, <laughs> no, one, no, no one does that. I'm not the person. That, so. Hey, along that note, uh, you know about uh, you know you were basically baptized in, into the music scene at a very very early age. At early age, you know, you started writing music at, at a very early age and uh, um, piano and so forth. And you started playing around with the guitar around thirteen. Is that correct? Or yeah, that's that's essentially correct. Yeah. I um, started playing piano when. Um, Really, as early as I can remember, probably six or seven years old, I remember my dad got me a little Casio tone keyboard <laughs> with the uh, killer demo track, demo drum tracks in it oh, and everything really? um, <laughs> for Christmas. And I was, I remember looking down at it and just thinking it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Oh, yeah. And I played piano and started writing. Well, I mean, my way of kind of getting, learning music, I, I just, it was sort of a unique um, perspective I had. I didn't really think there was music unless you wrote it yourself. Right. I mm-hmm. really. I was brought up in that sort of a house, and so, um, but then, yeah, later on, uh, probably around 13, you know, piano wasn't so cool, Nirvana was, was big, and, <laughs> and uh, it was mostly because uh, of the part, you know, you, you can't whip out a piano at a party. <laughs> Bring it in, boys! <laughs> Reel it in, fellas! <laughs> so I think that's probably how I fell into the, to the guitar. A similar situation with the guitar, too, is I, I walked into, and I, was, I think I was at like an after-school kind of daycare-ish sort of hang when I was like 12 or so, mm-hmm. and uh, I walked in on this rock band practicing, um, who later became friends of mine and actually bandmates of mine, but um, in behind my, you know, uh, school, and uh, I saw this, uh, wow, it was a Fender Strat, mm-hmm. classic Sunburst uh, American Fender Strat through a, a Marshall Lead Series amp, and I, my jaw just dropped. I couldn't believe what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> How was that? Yep. So, so today, when it comes down to your primary instrument, what what do you choose as your 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 instrument of choice uh, when it comes down to writing, or do you mix it around? You know, I, I would consider 
probably a lot like my father, my primary instrument really be my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but my primary instrument is guitar. Okay. And I do really love, I've, been, I've forced myself back into practicing and, and writing on piano in recent years. And mm-hmm. uh, although my skills are still quite uh, elementary, I, um, I really enjoy it because I think that, um, well, I mean, probably a lot of writers may tell you that their best material kind of all flops out at once. You know, right. People always ask, like, do you do words or music or lyrics and this sort of thing. And, and uh, one of the things that happens, I think, when you write on an instrument that you don't know what you're doing and you can't analyze and pull apart, oh, that's so simple or that's so easy or I shouldn't do that or whatever, um, is you write more honestly. And so mm-hmm. I, uh, I like that about writing on piano. Yeah. You know, I, I read an interview with you that I, I found on a website called soulsandsounds.com. Oh, and you, wow. <laughs> you said something there that really captured my attention, and you said, and I'm quoting, music is like distilled emotion, second only to smell and its power to transport you instantaneously to another place and time without you agreeing to go along. Do you, do you remember saying that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> my first reaction was, well, that depends on what you're smelling and what you're hearing. <laughs> <laughs> but but I definitely agree. But I definitely agree with this, and wondered if uh, if that was a Crosby Loggins original statement. As far as I know, it is. Yeah, uh, you know, it's one of those things that um, I mean, I think I recognized it in its relationship to smell, in particular, that strange um, sort of analogy. Several years back, um, I think I'd recently you know broken up with my girlfriend, and and I smelled her. You know, I see the same uh, same perfume perfume mm-hmm. where uh-huh. I was walking through a mall or something. And I spun around, you know, and was like, oh, she's here. And then I was like, you're such a fool. She's not here. And what are you thinking? That's just like some other girl with the same perfume. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I noticed the same thing really happened to me in the car driving down the road hearing, you know, the same old love song or whatever neat, it was. Yeah. And so it really struck me at the time. But it's just, it's moreover, it's been a, it's been a theme. Uh, I'm really thankful for the emotion that music evokes in mm-hmm. me. And I think that a lot of the more powerful, um, you know, transformations or whatever you might want to call, you know, like internal changes I've gone through in my life has been a result of things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, going, getting back a little bit to, you know, your immersion in the music scene as, at a very young age and all through while you were growing up. Um, over the years, as you were growing up and seeing your dad in the spotlight and so forth, and, and you see different musicians, different acts, and I, I have no idea, but, but give us an idea of, of what Crosby saw at, at a, an early age and seeing the change of music from you know uh, the '80s and where we are right now. What, what's your perspective? Where where has music? I mean, it's come full circle, man. It's, it really has. It's changed a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, well, it I has. have to preface it by saying I missed all the good stuff. <laughs> Do you really mean that? <laughs> I was born in 1980. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no. I mean, I, it's, you know, I say that jokingly, but to a certain degree, I think if there were. If I had it to do again and I had any control over it, I sure wish I could have been born in, like, you know, 55 or something, and at least see the 60s and the 70s. Um, I, uh, I, I, I can't, I can't help, I'm really excited with the independent music movements that are coming around today. Mm-hmm. And it's just in the last few years that I've stopped sort of saying this mantra, but I used to always really feel like, man, I just missed all the good stuff. You know, I just felt like I, it was the part of music in America that I was, that I've been in love with my whole life had kind of passed and um but you know the strange thing was i don't know how much perspective i had or how good my perspective really is because i was never a real audience member mm-hmm. there was 
I was always, you know, Michael McDonald was just like Uncle Michael, you know? <laughs> the house, I'm like, how come you always talk like this? No, I'm just kidding. I, I, and by the way, I adore Michael McDonald. He's just one of the most... Oh, you guys crack it. Any Michael McDonald joke, I swear. It's such fair, fair game. Um, no, I mean, you know, it's... it's uh, he, man, he, I think he is a perfect example these days of kind of what what everybody has forgotten is, mm-hmm. is what, like, true talent. I mean, mm-hmm. he's so amazing. And mm-hmm. and so many other people. I remember meeting um, Paul McCartney at the Hollywood Bowl one time, uh, mm. and the only thing I was so excited about was that he had fireworks that went off on Live and Let Die, and I wanted to be a pyrotechnician. <laughs> you know, I was like, that would be the, the coolest thing to be. Um, and then I met Paula Abdul the same night and thought she was just short. So I don't know. <laughs> it, it is... It is weird to have, I think, uh, um, enough years of um, personal perspective of the music industry kind of bouncing around in my head mm-hmm. and to see what's going on in the industry at any given moment or what people seem to give um, uh, attention to. But with all honesty, I don't consider myself um, any more of an expert on music than, than any member of my band. In fact, probably less so. You know, I would say... Um, you know, my violin player, um, I've probably got a lot more hours logged in real life, and he's got a lot more hours logged in every record ever written by anyone you can imagine. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, I truly res- respect that perspective from the full audience perspective, really from listening to albums. And, and I think that's the only way really to experience music. I don't think seeing, you know, meeting performers firsthand yeah. is even the best way to go about it. Sure. Because David Crosby, who everybody thinks I was you know, named after, was a total jerk to me the first time I met him. So, oh, really? Uh, <laughs> he's not on Gold Crosby. No, he was, no, I mean, he's great. He's a great talent, and I love his work. But yeah, no, he wasn't the nicest fellow. Right. And neither was Bing Crosby, I hear, who I was actually named after. So, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, um, kind of on that same topic, and I'm going back a little bit to that 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 interview that I saw on that website that I mentioned. Uh, you, you know, you. You were asked what you thought was missing in today's popular music, you know, in most of today's popular music, and you answered the music. Oh, yeah, and the words. And it was a simple answer that, you know, packed a pretty heavy statement about yeah, the kind really. of product that's being turned out by today's music mm-hmm. industry. And, you know, can you elaborate a little more on that comment? You know what? I think a year and a half later, it really depends where you're looking in the music industry. Sure, exactly. Yeah, that's, a very, that's a very aloof statement to make, and, and I made it with light heart at the time, and I kind of want to make sure that that's known because you know anybody any artist who spends enough time looking around them is quick to judge themselves as not you mm-hmm. know not right. music and I certainly am quite humble about what I'm able to do but um, you know there's been moments I mean disco was rough for you guys and, and Britney Spears was rough for us and, um, <laughs> it was rough for me too yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here you know um, but <laughs> the thing is it's coming back around and yeah. bands like the Shims and Death Cab for Cutie and Iron sure. Line and um, an artist uh, you know well obviously Ryan Adams and um, Andrew Bird is one of my latest discoveries that I'm just uh, freaking out over you know I think that music is alive and well and mm-hmm. it always has been and the business of music is inherently you know an oxymoron mm-hmm. you know, the business yes. of art is in, in my opinion it's just really slippery stuff because as soon as you have a, a huge talent, um, like, you know, just 
pulling something completely out of a hat, you know, James Taylor or, or Sting or something, um, and you recognize that you can make this amount of money off of somebody, uh, you hire 100 more employees to handle that career, and then suddenly you hire 50 more on top of that, and then you need something else to help those extra 50 people really get paid their six-figure income. So you yeah. try to find six more things. But inherently, you're not going to find six more things because there's just one of them. That's right. right. That's kind of the nature of the thing that drives it out of control and 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 it causes a lot of sinister stuff to happen to oh, sure. decent, fine young musicians that are just trying to do their best, but they really get taken for a ride. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you know. Um, earlier today, uh, Rick uh, he let me know about um, your your website CrosbyLoggins dot com. I mean, we I had been on the site before, but he he pointed me to a wonderful video of you and your band uh, that's called The Light performing the song um, "Man in the Middle" uh-huh. in the studio, and well, we were just floored. The, the song is just excellent, and and uh, when Rick pointed that song out, and and I and I. Uh, and I listened to it a few times. I'm like, wow, this is a really refreshing, neat, neat cut. Um, tell, tell me about, uh, you know, was the entire band in the studio? Were you actually recording? Uh, what's the recording session? How did you end up uh, coming up with a little product like that that uh, has a video and, and all you guys in your cool green light? And I mean, the ambience was just wonderful, but I think the groove was really nice, you know? Thank you. I mean, that was honestly really thrown together, and that's actually kind of a placeholder on the site, to be totally, to be totally honest with you, mm-hmm. with you guys at this point. That's not a final mix of that cut, and it's also, um, you know, kind of a funky, I think if you look closely enough, you'll see uh, a couple of cymbal hits that don't actually occur um, kind of thing. But what the story is behind that is um, we did um, cut, um, you know, naturally what you hear is... is um, not a hundred percent of what you what was happening, although sure. we were tracking live right uh-huh. um, and so I mean there were some overdubs done, of course mm-hmm. um, as is you know pretty pretty rare that there's none no overdubs whatsoever done on a studio album these days um, but essentially yeah the the whole core of the record was tracked live and simultaneously, and that was a big um, challenge for us because you know I really wanted to draw when we cut this album, this band had only been playing together, the group had been formed only a month earlier. And we had written, I'd say, four or five of the songs for the album, and the rest of them were material that I'd had from growing up and stuff like that. And um, we decided to just go ahead and jump right in the studio and make something that could help us get out on the road and and Mm -hmm. work together. And we ended up liking the product enough to decide. I ended up spending uh, slowly over about a year working on it with the guitar player, Jesse Stevenberg, who's a phenomenal producer and actually just produced my dad's latest record. Oh, okay. Um, which was a huge kind of vindication for us and for me, you know, to see a, a musician I'd been working with for seven years finally, you know, get sort of validated on my father's camp. But um, we, um, we cut, to find a, a location where we could cut drums, bass, um, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and vocals. Of course, my guitar, my vocals, and acoustic guitar kind of had to be scratched because there just was no way to right, isolate sure, right. myself well exactly. enough. But we wanted the ability to cut organs, clavinets, Wurlitzer, Rhodes, piano, and violin, and have those elements be keepable yeah. while keeping drums and bass and electric guitar all at the same time. And we wanted to do this in one studio, and we wanted to do it affordably and independently. Mm-hmm. So what we ended up finding was a space that would work in Ojai, California, called Zircon Sky Studios. 
And at the time, their gear list wasn't up to our satisfaction for what we wanted to do. So we hired an engineer who was a close friend of Jesse's who had worked on, um, his father was in Supertramp. And mm-hmm. he was right, on right. Supertramp album. And um, we pulled in, we pulled all of our gear, <laughs> uh, I mean, literally down to the headphone um, system. Holy cow. I mean, literally everything. We rebuilt the studio. We had a three-day session there to track, I think it was nine or ten songs. And we literally um, rebuilt the studio from the ground up, everything except for the Pro Tools rig that we did record to. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was a really interesting experience, like moving walls around, putting up baffles in places to oh, isolate yeah. instruments, creating amp closets in hallways and in bathrooms, and um, everything we could to try to get as much of it keepable for mm-hmm. the live performance to tape. And then um, I think at one point in, during the, the, prog- the, the project, uh, my manager just said, hey, this is so cool looking, man. We got to grab, I, I just got this cool camera. Let me just come by and take some footage and see if maybe we get something that we can edit together into a funky little video. And yeah. six months later, we passed it off to a friend of ours who kind of clipped it together. And that's kind of what you see. That's great. Well, if you, if you, I love that song, Man in the Middle. And if you... Uh, you know, if you log your IP address visits to your website, you'll notice that it's my IP address that keeps sucking up all your bandwidth. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so just, just send me the bill. Sure put a block on you if we see our, <laughs> our bandwidth for the month. <laughs> hey, well, in researching your band, I've noticed that you've called yourself Crosby Loggins and the Leadbirds. Lead or was birds? it Leadbirds? Was well, a, that was the problem, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Crosby, Crosby Loggins and the Name Droppers, and now it's Crosby Loggins and the Light. And tell me a little about the uh, evolution of the band's name. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things that we're still not settled on or probably continue to evolve. Um, the, the, we really ran into a syntax error on that last one. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's very little that we could do about that. Pronunciation became a real big problem. And um, uh, But um, the... The truth of the matter is, if I had it to do all over again, I really just want to be in a band. I've grown up with a, a brilliant you know, lead um, front man for a father, uh-huh. who's a fantastic singer and yes. a great band leader. And, um, and he's been surrounded by incredible studio musicians who are paid to be part of his band and, and love to be there, but it's, it's admittedly a capitalistic enterprise, and that's sort of the way a lot of the industry is structured. I mean, that, and no criticism. It's just what it's appealing to me. But the dynamics of a band are also much more difficult, and that's part of why that happens so often. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Loggins and Messina broke up because those guys couldn't get along, and that, you know, is always the case. It's very rare that bands like Pearl Jam, um, you know, even bands, I mean, of our, of today, there's so few bands that you can count that whose members have remained the same. Mm-hmm. Over a long mm-hmm. That's true. But um, that wasn't really the problem. The problem was that I'd done a lot of um, promoting for the fact that I existed in my career and stuff before the band had been formed, and that had all been under my name. Right. So we had the decision to make. If I was going to ditch my name, um, we had to decide on something, and we had to do it now, and then we had to stick to it. And the really big strength about this group is that there are six musicians in this group who are all used to being the main guy in whatever band they've ever played in. Okay. And so everybody's got really strong opinions, and everybody comes from really disparate musical realities and artistic realities, but we all get along incredibly well, and we just synergize. It's just one of those things that happens. But when it came to a name, we just could not find anything, and we would scroll through. I mean, literally, I could lay out a scroll from here to Los Angeles, 
to, to show you the amount of uh, names that we went through, literally <laughs> hundreds. And all the good ones that we liked had either been taken or used or there was some copyright reason. And so we just kept coming back around, okay, I guess we got to be Crosby Loggins for another run of dates. I guess we got to be Crosby Loggins for another run of And then finally we were in the studio. I think Paul threw out, like, hey, why don't we be the name droppers? That's kind of funny, man. And because uh, everywhere we go, it'd be like, you know, Crosby Loggins, son of Kenny Loggins, <laughs> Jesse Kiepenberg, son of, you know, Super Tramp drummer, right, Paul right. Cartwright, on, uh, nephew of um, Oingo Boingo drummer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of progeny in the band. And right. so we went, fine, we'll be the name droppers. We'll let them just, you know, do that. Only problem is our music isn't particularly lighthearted. We air toward the more dramatic side of things, and nobody got the joke. So everybody got really, you know, lots of fans <laughs> were confused. <laughs> We were the only ones who got the joke on that one. So we ended up going with something. We were looking for a vintage sound. We were looking for something that was old school. We went with Leadbirds for a while. Everybody called us the Leadbirds. And then we finally ditched it. And I was in, in a pinch uh, having to go out on tour. I recently opened for a great blues guitar player named Joe Bonamassa. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in the southeast. And uh-huh. uh, while we were out doing that, I needed to promote more heavily and specifically for this upcoming album and do something I could latch onto. In the end, we couldn't decide on the name again, so we just had to keep my name, and we went with another band name attached to it. And it may change on the next record, too, but it remains <laughs> all the same people right. in the end. So we're just kind of having fun with it. That's well, you, awesome. You definitely have a, a, an incredible front line of uh, musicians. And I call them front line because, <laughs> according, I mean, their talent and caliber is one that they can be at the front line. Um, in a lot of your cuts, Paul Cartwright on his uh, fiddle, on his violin, uh, he he does amazing things. He's um, a he, he he is a genius. I, I think he's he's going to be a really uh, a real great in the future. Uh, uh, gee whiz, I played classical violin for nine years. I'm a keyboardist now, but I tell you, I, I grew up yeah I grew up listening to to fusion, even electric violin or something. And some of the tracks he actually had does some incredible even the effects. It almost to remind me a little bit of Jean Luc Ponty. I don't even know if you're uh-huh. even even if you're familiar with a jazz violinist, but the way he, his technique and the way he comes around is I, I tell you his uh, he he's amazing as to his contribution, and he knows exactly and precisely when to play. Yeah, you know, I mean um, that's. That's been something that's been a challenge to work out with six um, prolific musicians. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. You know, I, mean, I can't say that ever, all of us haven't ever stepped on each other's toes um, right. musically. You know, um, when you've got, there's basically three lead instruments in the band, and I think the most un, um, ex, undiscovered member is our keyboardist, Dennis Ham, mm-hmm. who's coming up in the jazz scene in Los Angeles um, playing with Gonzalo Rubicaba's band and mm-hmm. several other people. Um, Jimmy Haslip from the Yellow Jackets uh, right. he's become a number one call and he is insane he's just so amazing um, and Jesse is as well, Jesse plays everything um, and he decided to go ahead and settle on guitar for this band because everybody we had every other seat covered um, and only for that reason but yeah, you've got a lot of notes to field and you've got to keep them you've got to organize things and organize parts quite a bit and Paul is 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 brilliant in his ability to play appropriately and also to completely take over a stage. He's really the um, he's one of the greatest soloists on any instrument. And 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 what I mean by that is not necessarily just pure chops or mm-hmm. just pure groove or vibe, but his ability to perform live and to take over a room, whether it's the Greek theater yeah. or it's a club in L.A. Um, I've just seen this kid both in our group and also uh, he sat in with my father. I've seen him play with Oza Motley. I've seen him play with a handful of other incredible acts. And um, it's, it's so fun to go to a show 
and be floored by your friend and your bandmate. Isn't it amazing how some people have that gift of, of I mean, not just writing and making the music, but some people are born to like to perform in front of people. He's I mean, just born to perform in front of people, and that's I, nailing it right on the head. Because he really is a, is a very accomplished classical musician, and mm-hmm. he's the boldest violinist I've ever met, in a sense that and you can probably relate. Violinists don't commonly step outside of boundaries. They don't commonly step off of the page. Um, they're not usually very comfortable playing out of tune or exceedingly chromatically. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. Nothing's, every, nothing's sacred and everything is totally holy to yeah. Paul. Um, he, his email signature says putting the vial back in violin. He's just really committed um, <laughs> to finding his electric tones are yeah. insane. If you guys get a chance to go to the MySpace page that we have, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure we have a cut called March on America posted there. Oh, that, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, that's a violin. That's not oh, a yeah. guitar. Exactly. And I, I think a lot of people are going to mistake that too. Boy, that's a neat effect in a guitar or something, you know? And it's, yeah. Uh, Commonly no. they do like, oh, wow, what a weird slide guitar. Yeah. Because they can hear maybe that it's intonating, not in half steps. But no, it's that's a violin. And, yeah. And uh, that's a take, you know? And it's that's a, it just, we kind of were all sitting in the control room and, kind of leaned over the button and like, okay, can come on in. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, uh, that's a pretty insane take. And the, and the title of our record um, is probably going to be We All Go Home, the title cut from the record. He has a, a really brilliant outro solo. But we also tried to keep the soloing on the album itself to a minimum. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the performance that he did, it really doesn't touch his facility. We try to keep it for the live show, give people a reason to come out and see us. Yeah, and then there's another member of your band, uh, Dennis Ham. Uh, you mentioned that he's one of the more talented jazz keyboard players that you've worked with. He's one of the more talented jazz keyboard players I've ever seen, mm-hmm. and in my father's bands included. Um, he's reaching a level of, of facility that just you know direct. You see those people who they don't, they're not thinking about any kind of scale or theory anymore. Their hands are attached to the instrument, and their brain is attached to their hands, and it just flows as, as though it were one thing. And that's a that's a huge joy for me because um, it's actually one of the similarities I have with my father in that um, some of my dad's biggest successes writing with Michael McDonald and other keyboard was writing with Michael McDonald and other keyboard players, and that would be um, maybe his first solo album, Celebrate Me Home. Right. Um, that song was born backstage playing with a great keyboard player where he just kind of had a melody in his head, the keyboard player could feel the vibe, and they worked as one, and they just wrote it in like 15 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when Dennis and I get together and we get in a groove and we're writing together, it's just so much fun because <laughs> there's, you never spend any time looking for changes or anything. I mean, I'm glad. I, I mean, I did go to school for a while, and I, I know my theory and stuff, and I feel like a, a decently accomplished guitar player, but I don't consider myself even close to virtuoso. And um, so when I start really feeling something and getting excited and wanting to follow the trail of it, it's frustrating to have to stop and look for a chord. And when you have somebody like Dennis, you can just not be hindered by anything. Good feeling. That's great. Well, Crosby's being uh, gracious enough to allow us to uh, to play a couple of his new songs here on Inside Music Cast. And the first track we'll start off with is Always Catching Up. And before we dive into the song, can you tell us a little about the, the theme and what was your motivation uh, for writing this particular song? Well, this is cool, and this is unique. Um, I'm glad that you picked that. That's really cool. Um, this is a unique cut um, because uh, it was actually my sister who started that song. My oh, yeah? younger sister, Bella, is 18 now, and okay. she goes to school at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And um, she's studying keyboard, guitar, and mandolin. Wow. 
and she's in love with Nickel Creek. Um, a group that <laughs> yeah. um, I don't blame yeah. her. That's a great band. Yeah, I'm, I've been enamored of those guys for quite some time, um, and I have friends that know Chris Steely from childhood and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I think she started it from a very sad place. And um, actually, the inside story on this you might enjoy. I came home one night. I was a, a little bit drunk. And I stumbled into my sister's room. She was away at school. And I noticed on her um, desk, I had to go through her room to get to my room, and I noticed on her desk this little tape recorder that looked just like mine. And I had actually given it to her for Christmas, but I was facing on that in the, mo- and in the moment. Um, I grabbed it, and I went, oh, what's, what's the last thing I did on this thing? Oh, there's got to be something frustrated. I need a new song. I need a new song. And I rewound, and I pressed play, and I heard this verse. And it, I just sat down and started crying. It really wow. hit, hit me really hard. And mm-hmm. I was really impressed. I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know she was writing at all. I didn't know she was playing at all. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went to her and asked her, hey, can, can we finish this, this song together? Or is it so personal that you want to keep it? And she was like, no, no, no. I threw it away. I thought it sucked. If you want to do anything <laughs> with it, let's, let's do it. And then, you know, I just sort of evolved into something I wanted to showcase Jesse's lap steel playing and Paul's violin playing yeah. and try to keep it more organic and straight ahead. And so that's kind of what it came into. But emotionally, it's, it's about feeling left behind. It's definitely about um, a, sort of a sense of despair and an inability to, to find one's way. But in the midst of that, there's a hopeful feeling, and that's you know, the title of the song, you're always catching up. Just keep one foot in front of the other. Oh, very cool. Well, here is Always Catching Up by Crosby, Loggins, and The Light. You were standing right in front of me Wondering what it was you came to see Too far gone How could I forget The sight of dawn
Tell me a little bit about the creation of your music and, you know, your lyrics. Uh, um, you know, now that you have your band in, in, in place and and uh, we've talked about the talent that these guys have, not only as players, but are they also equally talented in writing and do you collaborate with them? They are talented writers and sometimes in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, um, as you know, in reference to this first record, it's most, I, I've been probably with be considered the chief writer, okay. um, although at this point, because things have been rearranged or tweaked in one way or another as a result of working with the band, it feels like a very collaborative project. Right. Um, as we move forward into the future, we've found a really synergistic way of working with one another as we get to know each other's roles and how we best work. That is really exciting. Um, and, uh, and a good example is a song that we wrote that we've got in store for our next album. That is one of our favorites right now. Um, it's called Buzzing All Over. And we went up to Fraser Park, which is this kind of podunk off the map place between Bakersfield and Los Angeles, up mm-hmm. in, uh, the grapevine, um, and uh, found this little house, and we shacked up up there to write for a couple of um, weeks. And after about a week, <laughs> what we noticed was that Jesse and I and Paul would end up um, working in a circle um, writing on music, working on the lyrics, working on the basic center of the piece of the song, the basic melody, structuring that. Once we had that going, we'd throw the changes over to Dennis, and he'd start reharming things here and there, mm-hmm. explore ideas, and say, hey, what about this, what about that? And the groove over to Forrest and Jared, our drummer and bass player, and then, um, uh, sorry to digress so much, but... The drummer and the bass player and the key player all came from a funk fusion um, group in Bakersfield called the Mother Funk Conspiracy. Yeah. And I was actually a huge fan of theirs before yeah. we ever pulled them into the band. And that's kind of like what solidified the band. We got this ready-made rhythm section that had been working yeah. for like 15 years. So we'd throw this song off to them, and then all of a sudden there's like you know three different wheels kind of all working in concert. And at the end of one day, in the beginning of the day, we'd started this song. And the begin- end of the day, I mean, we just explored every angle that we could imagine exploring with this mm-hmm. thing, and we had a final version, and it's barely changed since. And that's sort of like the way that we've been working. Um, probably the poppier songs end up in Jesse and I's hands. The more independent and more exotic-feeling stuff um, has a lot more Paul's influence. Yeah. So it's a real collaboration. I mean, it really is. Everybody contributing different, different things that the, the song might require, really. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, um, again, you know, like I always wanted to be in a band. I just thought that was the most fulfilling way to work. Mm-hmm. I wish, you know, uh, then then you, you know you get a hit to your ego and you go, well, you know, you should be able to do this all on your own. And, I mean, I can. I can do my version. I don't think that I like my version more than I like the version of everybody. Else. Yeah, I, 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 I follow you. Yeah, and probably other people would agree. <laughs> do you ever throw any ideas at your dad? Do you ever uh, just say, hey, listen to this, or does it happen often or not? Not that often, yeah. and that's only because um, I'm just working really hard to carve out a space for myself for yeah, sure. 
But, you know, when I was younger, yeah, absolutely. He, uh, he's been a huge influence and a huge, you know, my biggest fan. And sometimes when I was young, I wish that he would push me harder. He didn't right. want to push me because he didn't want me ever turning around and going, you got me into this, this industry sucks. Um, but, like, Jesse's dad pushed him a lot more, like, you know, practice, Jesse. You can't actually play that yet. Practice that, you know. Um, and then he'd go away and practice, and then he comes back a genius multi-instrumentalist. Um, but, uh, no, not to blame our fathers, but... Um, I definitely have collaborated with him. Um, I know he loves to write with me. I enjoy writing with him quite a bit. Um, there's been a couple of co-written songs we pitched for one project or another, and it didn't quite pan out. But um, and there was a moment where we almost were gonna like really start throwing stuff back and forth. I think when he was recording. Um, it's about time, which is like two albums ago for him. Yeah. And we had been sort of tossing ideas back and forth, and it started to really, I mean, writing with my sister and writing with my father, it's a really automatic process. We have similar voices, similar ways of approaching things, and it happens really easily. Mm -hmm. But I was worried that all of a sudden I'd end up with my first album and every other song was going to be co-written by Kenny Loggins and it's going to diminish my legitimacy right before right. I had a chance to build. So I'm kind of giving in some time before I dive Head I can on. certainly understand that, yeah. Hey, earlier this week you mentioned that uh, you're starting the mastering process for your record, uh, I think this week as a matter of fact. And it, How long has it taken you to get to this point from the original mm -hmm. conception of the songs to writing, recording, mixing, and now mastering? Oh, a decade or two. A decade or two. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's a, it's a good question because um, there's one song on the album that was recorded in one day two months ago. Um, three piece Jesse and I and Paul went in and, and played and recorded um, an acoustic song live on the tape um, there's a song the, the centerpiece of the album We All Go Home I started when I was 18 really and I'm 26 now mm -hmm. so um, you know first albums you know you, you, I'm sure you guys have always heard and said you know all that stuff a thousand times that it's Second albums are much more difficult because you have your whole life to come up with your first album. You've got you know, <laughs> You're right. 18 months to come up with your second. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, it really varies from song to song. I'd say half the record probably was material from, from, uh, that I had from the last, you know, four to eight years. Um, yeah. Sort of my favorite little bit here and there. And then another portion of the album was actually written very quickly upon the band really solidifying. And then another portion of the album has kind of been written since. By the way, you, you mentioned you were 26, or you are 26, and uh, I want to congratulate you for being the youngest guest on Inside Music Cast so far. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. I thought you were born in the 70s. That's, that meant you was. Huh? I was thrilled about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that you interviewed uh, Chris Rodriguez, and he's oh, yeah. one of my idols, and he played for Kenny for a while. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's incredible. Can the guy sing? The guy's got some great pipes. Man, he's a monster. <laughs> he's a total monster. You know, he can't really play guitar so well, but... Eh. Exactly. Everybody's he got their strengths, right? They'll <laughs> <laughs> have to work on that. Well, hey, is, it your, is it your plan to find a label and a traditional distribution for this new record, or are you going to look for an alternative route for distribution, such as, you know, like an online store or via iTunes? Um. Uh, actually, I am in negotiations right now with an independent label in um, Los Angeles. We've had yeah, mixed feelings about it, and the industry's been changing so fast over the last few years that mm -hmm. actually during the process of completing this album, we, we would have had completely different game plans um, mm -hmm. from what we have now. Um, but we've had some offers from um, major label imprints, um, boutique labels, 
But their albums, their, their, their release schedules are insane. You know, they're like, we can give you the week of March 7, um, 2008, or June 11, 2009, if you prefer. <laughs> I'm like, the week of? What, how do you guys work things over there? Well, I have, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's an interesting world. And it's tough, too. I don't really have any interest in getting, you know, pushed to radio for six weeks and then dropped after 90 days when my product doesn't sell. Um, on the other hand, um, Boy, it's nice to have those marketing dollars because right. you can get you know distro all you want. Absolutely. Um, but if nobody knows you exist, you're going to get all your product shipped back in 90 days anyway. So, um, really, um, we have traditional physical distro through the label that we're negotiating with. Um, we'll have uh, my management company is really putting together some brilliant things um, to do with in-house internet marketing. We definitely will be. Uh, my manager, by the way, is actually uh, eight months older than I am and has a, a quickly rising career. He's really taken by his name's Nick Hartley and he's with Fitzgerald Hartley. And his okay. father is Mark Hartley, another progeny story where uh, sure. his father signed Toto, Clinton yeah. Mack, uh, Fleetwood Mac. uh, Vince Gill, and many, many others. And um, so he's, um, he's been rearranging and following the pace of the new music industry and the new business models and where it's moving. And uh, he's created an in-house uh, internet marketing company within the management company that I'm going to link up with um, to do with the internet promo side of things. Very good. We will release through iTunes, and we'll release on our website, and probably Napster, CD Baby, or another you know internet. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. We'll do traditional publicity um, through. Uh, we'll, we're hoping to go with Surefire in, uh, in New York, and. Um, you know, and then just getting out on the road, really, yeah, really sure. there. So the really the only component in the in, in this sort of I guess non traditional you know deal that we're working on right now is big dollars for traditional marketing, right? Um, but it's also you know this is a band full of career musicians, and it's about taking the time and focusing on the music and okay. trying to let the music. You know, I, I was once told you know managers and labels and agents don't create opportunities, artists do. That's true, right? And they just steal them. You know, yeah. Those guys just have big catcher's mitts, and the, the better pitcher catcher they are, whatever, they can do their job great. But uh, mm -hmm. as an artist, it's easy to get distracted by the opportunities afforded you by connections and everything else. And, and another weird thing was I was really, I had this whole head trip when we started this whole thing. I didn't want to use anybody related to my dad. I didn't want <laughs> to go to my dad's channel. I didn't want to pull any right. favors. And amazingly, it's happened organically. That's great. Thanks, which just blows me away. Mm-hmm. Even well, though in the end, people who have worked with my dad end up coming onto my doorstep from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't been by calling dad. So, so far, so good. Yeah. Let's listen to another track uh, from Crosby's uh, upcoming release. This song is entitled uh, uh, Good Enough. And uh, again, give us a little background on the song there, Crosby. A good Enough I wrote um, and uh, shined it up a little bit with uh, Jesse and um, Dennis. Um, I... Uh, when did I start that thing? I started that thing um, a few years ago, and uh, right before the band actually solidified. And um, I actually was looking a lot at the music industry, and I was looking a lot at um, at sort of dreams in general, and, mm -hmm. and what it takes to. Um, it's just a very crazy thing to, yeah. to have a dream pan out and to work really hard to try to find a way to make it through this invisible, you know, glass ceiling that is the music industry. Sure. Yeah. But it also was much more personal. It wasn't really about whining about the music industry in the end. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think I, I wrote that mostly in one day. I just um, 
uh, drove up to a really beautiful spot in Santa Barbara that I like a lot and sat in the back of my truck and, and kind of penned most of it, uh, sitting in my truck bed with my acoustic guitar. So it really right. was a, a singer-songwriter. Well, there you go. There you go. This is one of my uh, favorite tracks. Actually, I, lo- I love this track. This is Good Enough by uh, Crosby Hawkins. Good enough. 
Hey, Crosby, if, if music wasn't the path you were following, what might you be doing right now? Or, I mean, do you or, or did you have another career interest that you wanted to follow? That's a great question. I love it. I don't think people ask those questions enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many <laughs> things that I love. Uh-huh. Um, but it probably wouldn't be art. It would probably be history. It would probably oh. be my first, mm-hmm. my first one. Um, cool. I was really into, you know, like my unflattering bio says that I was, you know, left high school and I went to Hawaii. And um, <laughs> I did end up bouncing through several colleges, although I didn't earn a diploma from one. So, and then music schools and, and colleges as well. But, but at the time, after high school, I went to Hawaii and I built houses for two years. And I was really um, growing up in a house of, um, privilege, you know, uh, of sorts and, and stuff. I, I was really impressed with people who really worked for a living and really shelled it out. And in the process, I fell in love with building and I fell in love with architecture and I fell in love with mm-hmm. um, the instant gratification of framing a, your own house and, and all that kind sure. of stuff. Um, and um, I've been, and I'm utterly, and the other thing I would say that probably nine out of ten musicians might say is space. I'm obsessed with space. I think that had I led a straight enough life as a young adult, I probably would have headed straight as, you know, for an astronaut or, or some really? kind of career. It's, although I could never be in the military, I was obsessed with flight. I was obsessed with um, even military planes. Right. You know, I'm the most non-militant person ever. And I think that <laughs> if I could go to... Uh, if I could go to space in my lifetime, that would be the ultimate. I'm with you on that. Yeah. That'd be when one I was thing. a little kid, I used to make my mom promise me that she wouldn't let me become an astronaut because they said these bad dreams, I'd go to the moon and run out of air. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I promise you, promise me you won't let me become an astronaut. <laughs> well, this, this is kind of a crazy side note. I don't know why this popped into my head, but a few years ago, you know, during the Super Bowl, everybody watches the Super Bowl for the commercials, you know, a lot of the times. And one commercial that just totally went unnoticed, nobody even talked about it, was a commercial by Sony. And it was a 60-second spot. They probably paid, you know, whatever it was, $4 million to run that spot. And it was about this guy. They, they set it to the song Carry On by, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, but it was sung by Alana Davis. And uh, it was like a re- remake. And it was about this guy who gives up – he's like he gives up his job, gives up his – sells his home and everything. And you see him go off to uh, – you know, he flies over to Russia and he goes up with the cosmonauts. And that was his dream. And, and that was like the end of the spot. And it was just so – such a well-crafted spot. And I thought, that's cool. That's going to be me someday. It's captivating, isn't it? It is. You know, the X Prize, and um, even (laughs) I'll even give a a little nod to Lance Bass, you know, for a moment, because I don't think the concept is uh, (laughs) odd, There's much better things to do with your money, sir. You know, know, the guy that was in space, Rick, the guy you're talking about, that was uh, Martha Stewart's uh, boyfriend who just paid four million bucks to go in space in Russia. That's what he was. Did you hear that news? I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you can pay $4 million bucks and go out in outer space. You heard that, right? He's the guy that made it. Yeah. Um, they, when the Lance Bass said, I want to go too, they're like, yeah, no, just make look bad. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, that's the first, I mean, it's amazing stuff. I mean, you still, actually, I've, been, I've had a fantasy with my, uh, my stepdad for a while. We've been threatening to go. Um, the Russian Air Force will offer you rides in uh, FU-27, <laughs> exactly. the most powerful jet that they created before oh, wow. uh, the end of the Cold War. Uh, <laughs> so, one of the only jets capable of a uh, straight vertical takeoff. Um, there's a lot of other facts I know about this, if you care to add. And the other thing is definitely, I mean, the computers and all that kind of stuff, so I might find myself sort of wandering in that way, but um, sure. I think that would be a cop-out at this point. I guess. I- I'd say stick with music because you're doing it. It's It's great. It's all yeah. good. <laughs> I'm really loving what you're doing. So it's, Good it's question, though. Um, hey, I also noticed that you were um, involved in the tsunami relief project. 
Um, you, did you have any additional involvement in that project outside of your song that you uh, gave gave for the uh, compilation CD? Well, you know, other than just corresponding with that group and um, also getting another friend and songwriter of mine who co-wrote March on America with me and was the son of one of the guys from the Dizzy Gritty Dirt band named Nathan McEwen. Uh-huh. He's got a cut on that record, too. Okay. Um, no, I can't say that I had a whole lot of other involvement other than just personally donating to the Red Cross. I see. And, you know, putting some stuff through my email channel and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as far as, you know, things in that direction, I actually started a nonprofit um, with my sister and my stepfather, um two years ago called Next Wave that was loosely based on a model of Surfrider Foundation at first. Mm. Uh, I've always grown up on the coast. But it evolved into a organization for educating um, 18 and under was the focus. It was for you know, high school and under. Um, uh, educating um, kids about environmental, um, simple environmental um, causes and, and, their, and their impact, particularly as it, re- as it uh, pertains to coastal um, towns. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but we actually evolved a step further into creating a concept of a meeting in a box that basically allowed um, influential people to give uh, quick, easy, informative talks on environmental issues to young people. So almost like an Apple iPod might be packaged in a nice, clean design, uh-huh. you would get a box that would give you all the talking points you need as a celebrity mm-hmm. to make an impact and have an effective talk to young people. Wow. And we break it down by age group and by location and by topic and then distribute these to people who don't have the time to do the research or they might want to help or be involved in something but they don't even know or you know, in their incredibly busy schedules, and I'm very privy to that and just how busy you can be. Um, to be able to be involved. So that was that was um, one of the things. And then lately, one of the things that I've just been trying to get involved with more is Star 4. Because I just think that's yes. pretty pressing. And, you know, every day that I, you know, slip into my nice hot tub behind my house, I just think, man, I'd give up a, a few hot tub days if I could have, you know, somebody else get a chance at this kind of a life. So, yeah. You know. We're blessed people, you know? We're incredibly blessed people. Yes, and we that's are. why, you know, the bottom line is it's just never, it's never been better. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, in the same thing in my professional life, one of the things that I always, you know, it, it's, it's a good thing that, you know, we're sort of meandering off topic, I suppose. But, you know, when I was young, I recognized something in my father and his music and his celebrity. And it, and it kind of struck me maybe when I was 14 or 15. And that's that celebrity really isn't worth anything in and of itself. And what I mean by that is from the inside, it doesn't, can't buy me love, man. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't mm-hmm. fill you up. It doesn't fix all your problems. Having the house and the boat and all the stuff that you want, in the end, mm-hmm. my family fell apart just like anybody else's. And what I realized was the thing that you can really do is if you have people here, you can make a difference in the world. And that's what celebrities are really good for. Right, yeah, that's true. And I feel very strongly that as soon as you're comfortable and as soon as you have what you need, and maybe a little bit of what you want, that the only logical thing to do is to share the wealth. And yes. I hope that I can stand by that, because right now i got got 100 bucks in my checking account. So <laughs> when the time comes when I'm doing better, I hope that I don't become a selfish person, and I feel strongly that I won't. But um, I think that it's, it's really, you know, the focus of celebrity shouldn't be on what they had for breakfast this morning, but on whose life they changed elsewhere. 
it's much more important. That's a great thought, great statement. Yeah. Well, Grosby, it's uh, you're, you're definitely focused in life and, and obviously in your music because it's uh, you know it comes out very very clear and and we congratulate you with um, the caliber of stuff that you're pumping out. We really do. Thank you so um, much, guys. What, I really yeah. When should we expect the release of the album? Do you have any idea or target dates at all? Well, we're crossing our fingers. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I've got a curse of the release date on this album yeah. because when I first started doing it, we thought we were going to cut it live and leave it alone and release it uh, the following month. And I told people on tour that was going to happen. Another act really mad at me. Yeah. But um, it's it's for real now. I'm actually going to the Master Studio tomorrow and it will be completed. The artwork will be completed in another 10 days or so. Well, great. And um, with a little bit of luck and the label um, schedule, off, uh, you know, of course, has a lot to do with this. But we've been told that they're interested in releasing it by August at the latest. So although that misses the summer um, concert season, yep. it does set me up for fall. And um, so I'd say, you know, look for it um, through the summer from starting in July. Awesome. Well, Great. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, hey, uh, for the listeners of uh, our podcast, Inside MusicCast, you can find out more about Crosby at CrosbyLogins.com and also on your MySpace site, which I think is uh, linked on your Correct, website. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend time with us. And, yeah, really. You know, please stay in touch and keep us posted on what you're up to. Absolutely, you know, guys. My pleasure. Maybe uh, great. I really appreciate the time. Maybe somewhere down the road we can chat with you again and, and catch up. Cool. That'd be great. Let's do an update a year from now. All right. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Crosby. Thanks so much. You guys have a good one. All right. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Crosby Loggins for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. <laughs>